Well, it's good to be here at Porchlight Baptist Church this morning. Enjoyed the good singing and uh, fellowship and uh, appreciate those that are here, those watching online. Uh, we're continuing on in our sermon series out of the Gospel of John. This morning, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Uh, it's not going to be a long message, but uh, we've uh, got some things here we need to cover and discuss throughout this uh, section. I've titled the message, Jesus Cleanses the Temple. Jesus Cleanses the Temple, and you should be familiar with that story. Uh, it happened two different times throughout the uh, the Word of God we're, we're told about. But uh, here in John chapter 2, Starting with verse 13, the Bible says, And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Then answered the Jews, and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the reading of your word this morning. Help us now as we try to preach. May you receive any glory from it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we pick up here, uh, following in the steps of the earthly ministry of Jesus, his public ministry, I guess you could say, um, from, the, from the beginning of it up to this point, uh, John has kind of kept everything in order, kind of give us a timeline of things, was giving us days, you know, the third day, the second day, and all this stuff like that. Uh, but here we see some time has passed. It's difficult to say exactly how much time has passed since the event we read about in the previous verses where the marriage at Cana took place and Jesus turned water into wine, which was his first uh, public um, miracle that we know about. There might have been others, but this is the one the Lord's uh, word tells us about. It's, but this picks up probably uh, maybe a year has passed during uh, Jesus' public ministry by this time. We, we really don't know. But we do know the Passover time would have been around April 14th. That's when Passover takes place. And there were, there are, were and are, seven main Jewish feasts that are mentioned in God's Word that the Jewish people observed, still observe. Now they have added many, many other feasts since those that were given in Leviticus. But Leviticus chapter 23 gives us the list of the feasts that God commands them to observe in the order they're observed in. I'm just going to briefly go over these seven feasts so that you understand some things about how the Jews um, operated, how they, uh, things that they did throughout the years of their life. So the first one is the Passover. Now this is a very important um, uh, feast day, probably the, the very most, uh, if not the Day of Atonement, uh, perhaps might be the, the most important, but the Passover 
That's the first feast mentioned in Leviticus 23 and 5, and it occurs on the 14th day of the first month in the evening. So the 14th day would be of April uh, in our on our calendar. I believe it's Nisan or something. You know, their calendar is what it's called. But uh, this is the day when the Jews remembered that the Lord promised he would pass over, the death angel would pass over any homes that had blood painted on the lintels, on the doorposts. And if they didn't have the blood applied there, then the death angel would come for them. So uh, they, they recognize this every year of when that Passover took place. Now we know shortly right after that happened, then they departed from uh, Egypt. There, and that's where they were during this Passover period originally. But they observed this every year without uh, fail. And uh, every year, every Jewish male from 12 years old and up, if they're devout Jews, they're going to go to Jerusalem to observe the Passover, participate in the festivities that happen there. Jesus, we know from reading the scripture, and we're going to read it here in just a little bit, that he observed this as well. His family, his mother, his, or his parents, the Bible calls them his parents, which would be Mary and his earthly father, which would be, of course, his adopted father, Joseph. But they observed this every year. They went to Jerusalem. No doubt they took Jesus with them. But we do know at 12 years old, Jesus did go with them there because he stayed behind on the way back. And we'll, we'll look at that in a moment. So the first Jewish feast is the Passover. And then the second one is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's going to be in, uh, also in Leviticus chapter 23 uh, there. Um, and it's the 15th day of the first month. And this Feast of Unleavened Bread lasts for seven days. Uh, this is in remembrance of when the Jews departed from Egypt. And uh, we refer to it as the Exodus. The Exodus is when... The Jews departed out of Egypt. Moses led them out of there, and they crossed over the dry ground. They, the, the, the sea parted, and they, they crossed over and, and then destroyed uh, Pharaoh's army. But they remember these days and have unleavened bread. They cannot eat any bread with leaven in it. And that leaven is the, the ingredient that causes it to rise. We, we have yeast. That's what we call it. And if you have yeast in bread, it causes it to rise. They were forbidden to eat that bread. Now, remember when the Lord, uh, when they were preparing for this exodus from Egypt, the, that's what he commanded them to do is to eat only unleavened bread. And then they had, of course, the lamb that they were going to, they prepared, they roasted it and, and all that. And uh, if you remember when Brother Plot came to our uh, previous church and demonstrated the Jewish Passover and he, he demonstrated all this that we're reading about right now um, and, and discussing and uh, all the different things they did during the, the Passover meal and uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Pretty interesting. Uh, during that seven days, of course, they were not to do any work. And uh, that is very important. Uh, the third feast that's uh, mentioned is the Feast of First Fruits. That's in Leviticus 23 and 9. And uh, it is at the beginning of the harvest season. So they've already had everything planted and everything. They're going to harvest the crops. Those first crops that they harvest, that's the first fruits. They would take these first fruits to the, the, the priest to have for an offering. And he would offer up these things to the Lord. And this offering 
was called a wave offering. That's because the priest would wave it before the Lord. He would take the offerings and wave them before the Lord, and it's a wave offering. Uh, and that is uh, the Feast of the First Fruits. And then the fourth one is the Feast of Weeks, also called Pentecost. Pentecost means 50th, the 50th. So whenever you hear somebody um, celebrating Pentecost, that means the 50th day. And uh, um, this was the 50 days after the First Fruits Feast. So after they completed the First Fruits, the offering of that, 50 days passed, then they would. Uh, this would be uh, the start of Pentecost in the 50th. Now, there were several sacrifices made during that time period. I'm not going to go over them all. This is really not about these feasts. I'm just wanting to give you an idea of what they were observing. Uh, the fifth one is the Feast of Trumpets, Leviticus 23 and 24. That occurred on the first day of the seventh month. Uh, this is when they would go out and they would blow a trumpet uh, in holy convocation, is what it, what it says. And they didn't do any work, and uh, they would make an offering by fire unto the Lord for this uh, Feast of Trumpets. And then the sixth one is the Day of Atonement. Now this probably, between this one and Passover, these are probably the most important. Of course, the Day of Atonement is important for us because this is a representation of what Christ did for us. Atone for our sins. Uh, he forgave our sins. But the earth, in the Old Testament, this is a, um, a shadow of things that were to come. So the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 23-27, occurred in the tenth day of the seventh month. And this is the day they would repent of their sins. They would lay their sins on an unblemished animal, uh, a, a lamb sacrifice. Um, and they would bring it before the priest who would perform all the priestly duties, the rituals, the slicing of the throat, draining of the blood, go back into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood and, and put it on the mercy seat and all that. This took place during the Day of Atonement. So work was strictly forbidden. Uh, anybody that worked on those days uh, or uh, did not participate in it, they were condemned. They were run out. And so this was important, uh, the Day of Atonement. Um, and the priests offered the, the, the sacrifice for the sins of, of all of Israel at that time. Uh, the seventh and final feast is mentioned there in Leviticus 23 and 34 is the Feast of Tabernacles. Some people also call it the Feast of Booths, a booth being a small hut. And uh, that occurred on the 15th day of the seventh month. A lot of things happened there in the seventh month. And they would offer sacrifices for seven days while putting up residence inside these huts they built out of palm branches. <laughs> so they would build these small huts out of palm branches and they would live in them and sacrifice there for seven days. And, uh, of course, they were not to do uh, work besides building the hut if they didn't have it already done, but uh, Feast of Booths. So those are the seven main Jewish feasts. Uh, some are called, sometimes they call them festivals, but the King James says they're feasts. Um, and they still observe those today, as devout Jews do. And, again, they've added several more besides these. If you just go and Google Jewish feast days or festival days, You'll find a list of, well, I don't know what it is, around 15 or so. But they have Purim, uh, you know, when the Jews were um, saved from Mordecai and uh, different things like that that they observed that they didn't have during the Levitical times when 
Moses was instructed by God to, to give them these uh, feasts. All right. So here we find that Jesus has gone into Jerusalem during the Passover time. Big, big, big event. Like I said, every Jewish male, every family that were devout Jews, they traveled to Jerusalem from all countries around, uh, and we would consider those foreign countries, to Jerusalem. Uh, so they would travel there to participate in the Passover time. Uh, they had to have a sacrifice of, of, as well, and uh, they also paid temple tax and things like that. And so in our opening text, we see that time period is at hand. Now, I told you that Jesus, we know, participated in this all the way from a young boy because in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 43, we read this. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus carried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. Now we know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. Jesus was there. They found him later there teaching to the doctors and lawyers in the temple. They were asking him questions, and he was answering them. Twelve years old. And that's really the last thing we hear about his childhood. But we do see that he went to Jerusalem every year to participate in the feast of the Passover. All right, so that's what he's doing at this point. And his disciples are coming, you know, everybody that that uh, participates in, in the Jewish festivities, they're going to Jerusalem. All right, look at verse 14, John 2 and 14. And found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. So during this Passover, as we said, all the, these Jews would travel to Jerusalem to observe it. And so that means people would come from these foreign countries into that place. They, it would be way too difficult for them to bring their own sacrificial animals. Can you imagine transporting doves and oxen and, and sheep and everything else all the way to Jerusalem. Say you were living you know, 200 miles away and you're going to have to bring all this with you. Uh, they didn't do it. So they relied upon being able to purchase a sacrifice when they got to Jerusalem. And no doubt there were many, many people there that was willing to sell them this stuff. Uh, they wanted to make sure uh, that uh, they got the money. There was a lot of people there making money off of this. Big business. And so people would set up these booths uh, there uh, all around Jerusalem, but... We see here they've set them up in the temple, in God's house. So they've set these places up. Maybe they set them up in there because it's more convenient for them, and they knew everybody's going to be passing through right there in the temple, maybe to you know get into the, the, the shade or whatever it was that they were setting up there in God's temple. And uh, money changers, that was an important thing too because these people coming in, they were using money from their countries. Well, the temple, for the temple tax, it required Jewish money, not Roman money, not money from some other country. So they had to exchange their money for Judean money that they could use to pay their temple tax and to purchase their uh, sacrifices and things like that. So the money changers then set up there and they know people's got to exchange their money. So what do they do? They charge interest. 
It's not free. You don't just come and say, I'll give you a dollar of, Ju- uh, of my money for a Judean dollar. It didn't work that way. No, no, there's going to be an upcharge. So I'm going to charge you 1%, 2 3%, whatever it is. It'd be like us going to Germany, taking our U.S. dollars and trying to buy something with it. And they're going to look at it and say, hey, we, we can't take this. you you got to have German money, Euro dollars. It used to be the German mark. But back in, I think, 92, they turned to the Euro system. So now that you have to have a, a Euro dollar. <laughs> and so we would have to take our money over there and exchange it for a Euro and they're going to charge us money. I, I believe the, the base charge for that is 1%, but they charge even higher. If they know you've got to do it and you're in a desperate situation, you've got a crooked person, they're going to charge you whatever they want to charge you and you're going to pay it. And so that's the same thing that's happening here. They're swindling people out of their money taking it for themselves, making a profit off of God's feast, off of God's festivities and his His uh, command for them to do. So the whole business was crooked. And not only was it crooked, but it was set up in God's house, a holy place doing unholy things. And it doesn't set well with, with Jesus. And so look at our next verse, 15. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. So we see here Jesus' righteous indignation, his holy wrath. He has every right to do this. This is not a wrath of like we have when we do things in anger. Our anger usually comes is a sinful anger. This anger is a righteous anger. It's justified. It's a holy one. Because these people are, this is sinful, what they're doing. And they're doing it in his father's house. And so he makes him a little whip. A scourge is a, a, a whip, is what that, what that is. Uh, if you remember when Jesus was uh, scourged before he was crucified, they, a Roman whip, they scourged him with it. So he makes himself one out of probably leather things that were there. And he starts driving them out of the temple. I can just see it now. Running after him. Wow, wow. You know? And taking off. Boy, the, and they got out of there. Uh, and not only did he do that, but he started turning over the tables and dumped out their money. And so everybody's just, you know, it's a it's a wild free-for-all. Free for all. But uh, if you notice there, he ran out the oxen and... Sh- uh, let's see. It says, and found the... Those, okay, down here. He drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen. It doesn't say the doves. But he addresses the ones with the doves next. Uh, the doves would have been held in cages. So they're going to have to take these cages out of the temple. It's going to be a, it's going to be a big ordeal. And so uh, Jesus runs them all out of there and turns over everything. And uh, what, a, uh, what a surprise this must have been. For all them. Now, this event happens there in the beginning of his, earth, or his public ministry. It happens again at the end of his public ministry. Before his crucifixion and all, when he goes back there to the temple in Jerusalem, he goes in and those guys are back. And he runs them off again. And boy, they get upset at that one. This one here, they run. They turn tail and run. And you don't, I mean, they don't give any rebuke or anything. It looks like they're afraid. So... But when he does it the second time, it doesn't set well. And uh, we all know what all, what happens after that. But you can read the Synoptic Gospels gives us the account of the second time. 
Matthew 21, 12 through 17, Mark 11, 15 through 18, and Luke 19, 45 through 46, all tell us about that second time that he did this. Now, if you notice, nobody fought against it. We didn't see that, you know, one of the oxen dealers jumped up and, you know, made fisticuffs and he's ready to go. No, they took off. The reason is because they know what they're doing is wrong. They know that. Uh, in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus describes himself as meek and lowly. Don't mistake that for being weak and vulnerable. He's meek, not weak. And so they're probably all scared to death of Jesus as he comes in there doing this. And he has authority. Uh, every time Jesus speaks, it's with authority. And there's no mistaking that. If you've ever spoke to somebody that has a lot of authority over something, it's kind of like you're like, you know, you listen. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, verse 16, it says, And said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. Okay, so... Jesus isn't just going to turn over the tables and run out of the temple. You know, I'm afraid he's going to get caught. He's there. I mean, he means business. He's commanding these with his authority to stop what you're doing. Don't do this. Get this stuff out of here. Take these things. Hence, and make not my father's house a house of merchandise. He called them a den of thieves the second time. And because that's what they were, they were thieves. And so by claiming... What he's done, he, he remember he said, my father's house. So he's saying, this temple is my father's house. So immediately what he's doing, he's declaring himself, uh, he's declaring his deity. He's connecting himself with the father, meaning he is the son of the father. So this is a big deal. And um, listen to what it says in Malachi 3 and 1. Malachi says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. So we've seen that those events already take place here in the Gospel of John. We saw the one who Malachi said would be the messenger that prepared the way, that's John the Baptist. Then it says, uh, And the Lord, whom you seek, shall suddenly come to his temple. Now we see that uh, fulfilled. Uh, so, a lot of fulfillment of Scripture. Now, next in verse 17, back in John 2 and 17. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house has eaten me up. So, as, the, as Jesus' disciples witness this, they immediately, their thoughts go to Scripture. The disciples were very scriptural. They knew the Scripture, even though they were uneducated, in men's terms, like, you know, uh, they didn't go to seminary like Paul did. Uh, they were fishermen, blue-collar workers, but they knew the Scripture. They studied it. And immediately, they remembered that Scripture from the Psalms, Psalm 69.9, that says, For the zeal of thine house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that that particular Psalm is referred to Maybe not in those exact words, but referred to like 17 times in, in the New Testament. 
Uh, I may be wrong on that, uh, but uh, I believe that to be the case. It's one of the most referred to um, psalm or scripture of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And so I think this shows us just how important the house of God is. Now, I know we are his house. I mean, you know, when we come together, we're one body in Christ. He's the head and we're the body. And I understand that. But I also believe the place where you congregate, like these churches that are built and people go to, that that place is designated for that church to worship in ought to be a holy place. It ought to be. Uh, too many churches today have turned God's house into a place of merchandise. Yeah. Uh, it's sad. I wonder how many money changers the Lord would have to run out of Baptist churches today. Uh, all right. Look at verse 18. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? So now they've irritated the Jewish hierarchy. These people are probably the, the high priests, probably the Sanhedrin, the people that are overseeing the, the temple, the religious authority. Now they've been drawn out because they heard, wait, this guy just referred to this place as his father's house? Is he claiming to be the son of God? Because if he is, we've got a problem. And so they want to know what he, what he's doing. Who gave him this authority? What right do you have to do this? What makes you able to come in here and say these things and run these people off? And so they want him to prove himself by performing some kind of miracle. <laughs> well, Moses performed a miracle when he went before Pharaoh and he turned his his uh, cane into a snake and all that stuff. And Moses could do it. Well, if you've truly been called to do this, if that's your calling, if you're the son of God, we want a miracle out of you to prove yourself. And so that's what they want. We don't know what they're expecting, but uh, when we get to John chapter five, we see the Jews don't ask for a sign from him when he claims, lays claim to the father. Over in uh, John chapter five, they immediately plot to kill him. They're not going to ask him any questions. They're not going to, you know, give him a chance to perform a miracle. They're just they just made plans to to murder him when he claimed to be the son of of God. All right, now verse nineteen, back in John two, Jesus answered and said to them, "Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up." Now I put emphasis on this. The Bible doesn't emphasize the word this, but I believe that this is what it's talking about. Is this when Jesus said? Destroy this temple. We know that to be the fact because it tells us in in the next verses. <laughs> so, or in the very next verse. Um, well, two verses from this. So, he tells them, look, destroy this temple. In three days, I'll raise it up. So, Jesus really knocks these Jews for a loop. Uh, they don't know what to make of this. What in, the, what, what in the world is he talking about? They're clueless because we see in the next verse, verse 20, then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? And then the Bible says, But he spake of the temple of his body. Can you just see these guys? These religious, stuck-up, snooty uh, guys, they come to him, they're you know expecting all this stuff, and I'm sure they felt like they were better than him. You know, who do you think you are? Do you know who we are? And then... For him to actually claim that he could rebuild the temple? 
If we destroy it, he can build it in three days. Why? It took 46 years to this point to get where we're at. Uh, this temple they were standing in during that time had been going under renovations for 46 years. And that's as far as they've gotten. They're still not completed with it. Uh, it wouldn't be too much longer after this. It'd be destroyed. But uh, a lot of hard time and work had been put into that building of that temple. And so they think Jesus is out of his mind. Because they're thinking with their physical senses and not spiritual. Because they don't have any spiritual um, um, thinking about them. Uh, so we see here Jesus is speaking about the temple of his body. Referring to that time when he would arise in three days. You destroy this temple, hanging on a cross, crucified. Well, in three days after you bury me, I'm going to arise. And so Jesus referred to that time that was going to happen many, many times. I meant to go through and count how many times he told either his disciples or, or other people about those three days. He kept saying it, his whole, his whole ministry. You know, three days, you know, the Son of Man, you know, just like in uh, uh, Jonah, you know, in three days it's going to happen. But uh, most of the time, they, they didn't understand it. Those that heard him did not understand it. We can understand these Jews here. They don't have any spiritual discernment. All they're considered about is their religious uh, practices. They were so far away from God. All they were wrapped up in were all the rules and laws and regulations and making sure everything was taken care of. And so God was the furthest thing, really, from their heart. And they, they don't understand the, the spiritual aspect of it, only the, the physical and so immediately they think of bricks and mortar. And so they're very far away from God. They can't connect these dots. And the disciples, they, they connected them. But they didn't quite put all the pieces together until after the resurrection of Jesus. We see that in the next verse. Look at verse 22. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So, uh, Jesus never spoke an unnecessary word at all. Everything he spoke had meaning behind it. There was no... Uh, so a lot of times he spoke in parables. He spoke in ways that only true believers would get. He knows these guys are not going to get it. These, these guys, these Jewish um, temple um, caretakers, or whatever you want to call them. Uh, but for his disciples, many times he would... Put the, give them inside information. They would come to him later and say, Master, can you explain this? You know, he'd have to explain it. But uh, sometimes the disciples understood, but most of the time they were puzzled. And they didn't quite grasp it all until after the fact, until it was already done. And then, oh, yeah, that's, that's what he meant. And that's what they've done in this case. And so, you know, really, we, we look at it and we say, well, they were so dumb, you know. Why didn't they understand? They walked with Jesus, talked with him, and... and you know, stayed with him for all of that time, three years. You, you tell me they didn't understand things? We're no better. The only way that we have any understanding is because we have the full canon of Scripture available to us. And if you're saved, you have discernment. The Holy Spirit gives you discernment. So what did God do? He blessed us with his word. The disciples didn't have this canon of Scripture. They had the Old Testament. They had the Psalms, the, the, the prophets. They had the books of Moses. They did not have the New Testament. So they didn't have the, you know, the, the luxury of, of turning to the Gospel of John and saying, oh, that's, that's what he's talking about there when he said in three days 
Yeah, he's talking about, you know, when he goes and uh, he's crucified and he, you know, he's buried and he raises in three days. They don't have that luxury. We do. So we can look at it and say, oh, yeah, that's what he means. But uh, we need to understand that, that every thing in God's Word is important. And he's put it in the air for us to understand. And the only way that you will ever understand it is if you read it, you pray upon it, and meditate. And the Holy Spirit illuminates the Scripture for you, and that's how you understand God's Word. Now, it helps, of course, a lot of times. You listen to preaching that's able to explain it. You read commentaries or, or things like that. You can get a, a better understanding. But by and large, the best way to understand God's Word is simply by reading it and absorbing it and meditating upon it and, and asking the Lord to reveal it to you. He'd love to. How many times have you ever asked him? Have you ever asked the Lord, Lord, would you reveal to me what you mean right here? I don't understand it. No, because we're too proud. You know? Or we think we're too dumb. You know, I just I can't I can't understand that. You know? The Bible's just way too confusing. I just don't understand it. It's, it's not too confusing. It's just that we don't apply ourselves to it. I guarantee you something else that you love in your life. You will apply every single moment of your attention to it. If it's a new video game that comes out, you will sit there for hours and play that game until you learn how it works. But we don't do it with God's Word. We look at it and say, ooh, that's hard. Oh, I don't know what that word means. Look it up. Study on it. Do like you would with anything else that you love. And so we're going to stop right here. And we'll finish up those last three verses next time, Lord willing, on uh, the Lord knowing, knowing the hearts of men. And, uh, you know, that, that's a scary thing, actually, realizing just uh, how much God does know how we are. All right, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we come to you this morning, Lord, thanking you for the message. Lord, I pray for those that are listening. I pray if there's one out there that's lost, God, that... Uh, You'll convict their heart and show them the need for salvation. And Lord, I thank you for the, the depth of your word, Lord, for giving us the ability to uh, have discernment through the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray for those that struggle with your word, Lord, and, and give up. I pray, Lord, that uh, you give them encouragement to, to continue with it, Lord, and to uh, apply themselves to your word, that God, so that we can know you better. And Lord, we uh, we pray for our church. We pray, God, that you... Uh, watch over us, and Lord, you'll always find us in your word and in your will, and we'll give you the glory for it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. All hearts and minds clear this morning? All right. In fear of the Lord, we're separated. <laughs>